Welcome to Forever Leads. Hello and welcome to another edition of Forever Leads, the podcast for everyone who's ever been a student at Leeds or might fancy becoming one. All brought to you by the University of Leeds Advancement Team. I'm Rich Williams. It's been a very busy term and life here on campus is as buzzing as ever. Now, I'm a former student, so I'm thrilled to be guided about all things campus-based by my fabulous co-host, of course, uh, third-year film, photography and media student and presenter on lead student television. Very busy indeed. Uh, Georgia Lake. Georgia, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. I've never been in the Worsley building before. It's my first time in this building. How exciting. So, you know, a new part of university for me. We're actually recording this today on quite a momentous day for the city because King Charles is in Leeds today. Are you covering that on Leeds Student TV? Has the royal household offered you the exclusive interview? We've not got an exclusive interview. Uh, I think we've sent a few uh, unlucky freshers out with phones just to try and get some sort of little shot. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. Maybe there'll be a video out soon. Okay, good luck with that. Uh, just to paint a picture here at university, it's uh, it's autumnal. Half the trees have given up and the leaves have fallen off. The other half are still sticking with it for now, but it's a, a lovely scene and it's really, really busy here at the moment. And we have a very, very busy uh, podcast coming up for you on Forever Leeds. So Georgia, what's coming up? So on this episode, we're talking to superstar writer, podcaster and former Leeds student Pandora Sykes. Pandora studied English literature at Leeds and her experiences here have helped her become the voice of a generation through her writing on culture, life and love. Also, Leeds is known for its wet weather. And while this might have led to many drenched walks home after a big night out, it's also been a source of inspiration for weather wizard Dr. Jim McQuaid. Plus, we'll hear from the legendary former Leeds economics and sociology student Bill Bruford, ranked as one of the 20 greatest drummers of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. And it all started with a brief but fascinating time at Leeds. And you all remember the refectory, right? We'll be dropping into one of the most beloved places on campus for a taste of student life right now. If you have any memories of the refectory, please do tweet us at Leeds Alumni. We'd love to hear about your experience and also what you think of the podcast. Remember, Forever Leeds is out once a month during term time, so if you want to stay up to date and get every episode automatically, give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. Now, if you've ever picked up a lifestyle magazine, there's a high chance you will have come across our first guest's writing. In the mid-2000s, Pandora Sykes could be found hanging around the Brotherton Library, and this has doubtlessly inspired her to write about everything from the shock of being a fresher at Leeds after attending an all-girl boarding school to how to cope with the challenges of modern life. So, how do you go from the Leeds School of English to speaking to the souls of millions of millennial women? Let's find out about her extraordinary story. Hi, I'm Pandora Sykes. I'm a journalist and author and broadcaster. I have made some podcasts and some audio documentaries for the BBC. And I also host a podcast series called The Missing about long-term missing people. I decided to go to Leeds. Well, I saw that it was quite good for English. I think it was, I think it was in the top 10. And I had a lot of friends going to Leeds that year. I thought the city was amazing, first impressions, but also last impressions. The building that I spent probably the most time in that is just so beautiful is the library. 
Also, I went to an all-girls school, so the thing that really fascinated me was that I could sit alongside boys studying, and I'd never seen boys in an academic capacity, and I thought it was like the strangest thing. It was like seeing safari animals in the supermarket. But yeah, that building was really beautiful, and also it has the most amazing shops. The shopping in Leeds was really good. When I was there, Topshop was a massive, it was this cultural force that I don't think the high street's ever seen before or after and the Kate Moss for Topshop collection launched while I was there as did the iPhone and I queued up at 4am for both of them and I was quite proud that I was the second person in Leeds to own an iPhone because I was right at the front of the queue so I was I was a bit geeky I suppose in some ways and still am. I always knew I'd study English there was there was actually never anything else that ever came into it since as long as I can remember. I just always loved writing and reading. I can remember I wrote my dissertation on Atonement by Ian McEwan. I think I was a pretty diligent student. It was before I got to Leeds that I knew I wanted to do journalism. I was always writing to magazine editors asking if I could do work experience. And I did a bit of work experience uh, when I was at school at a couple of different magazines. But most places don't let you do it until you're at university or even when you've graduated. So I just did a lot of sort of reaching out to people. And sometimes really kind editors would reply. I remember Sue Pert, who was the then editor of You magazine, which is the Daily Mail's weekend magazine. She would always write about the kindest emails saying, you know, I've really noted how much you've got in touch with me. And I then later did go on to run a startup, a fashion startup for the Daily Mail um, the year after I graduated uh, because Sue put my name forward to one of the associate editors. So even if at the time it felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere, I think it was really useful writing these these love letters from afar because it helped when I when I came out the other side. We went out a lot. Yeah, I mean, you have such energy when you're a student. I'd never been out before. Um, I'd never been clubbing before. So we used to go to tequila. And I had a few friends who were tequila girls. So that was quite cool. That felt like it felt like you sort of knew someone on the inside, like you were guaranteed to get in. There was a really gorgeous pub, I think like a 20 minute drive outside of the city centre and just in the, that beautiful rolling countryside. It's an amazing chicken pie. And I can't remember the name of it, but every so often my friends and I would go and have lunch there and then go for a walk. And it reminded you that you were in Yorkshire because Leeds is so metropolitan and it's so high density with students. I think it's got more universities in one area than sort of any other place in the UK. So you just forgot that you were actually in a place of like stunning beauty. So I actually really loved coming outside of that sometimes and and remembering where you were. I spent a lot of time in the Hyde Park pub. I just remember that it was just an incredibly cheap night and it would be absolutely freezing and we'd all just bundle up in huge parkas. It was also the time for it, the kind of mid-noughties. And sit outside the pub for hours and it was amazing because you just knew you'd always see your friends there and I kind of miss that now I live in London and my friends live all over the place and just the ease of being able to walk in somewhere at 9 p.m and 20 people you really liked were all sitting around outside or playing snooker inside so that's probably the place I spent the most time and I also really loved the chicken satay paninis from I feel like it was called pure they were quite dear. So I remember I wouldn't let myself have one every day. I think I was, I allow myself to have one like on Monday and Fridays or something. 
those sandwiches still stick out to me. What happened to paninis? They were such a moment. I went into podcasts, I wouldn't say accidentally, but certainly not as a business. So podcasts were around, but they would absolutely not mainstream. I didn't know anyone that listened to them. I don't think I'd ever listened to a podcast before I came up with the idea. But I have always loved trying new mediums. It's why I'd had a blog. And so I said to my then editor at Sunday Time Star, you know, can I do like a pop culture podcast? And I said, and can I do it with Dolly, who was the new dating columnist there, who is now a, you know, incredibly successful novelist and memoirist and has just written a show for the BBC and she was my friend so they said yes it did moderately well and then about six months later I decided to leave the Sunday Times but we couldn't take it with us and so we decided to start it again from scratch and we called it the Hilo which was based on Tina Brown's concept in the 80s of high-low journalism, basically fusing low-brow and high-brow. It's what she did at Vanity Fair, and it's my favourite type of journalism. And I think it's much more true to how people live, which is that, you you know, you're interested in politics and global issues, but you might still watch reality TV or have an interest in a particular celebrity or, you know, be tickled by a ridiculous animal story, which were our, our favourite genre of story on the high-low. And we always knew it would only last four years. I don't know why, we just always had it in our heads. But we just forgot to tell people until about about three weeks before and there was such an outpouring of love and kind of grief by the, when we ended it. I think we had 1.2 million listeners by that point, which was just the most, it was just the most incredible gift. It really was. And it will always be the thing, one of the things I'm most proudest of because it came from such, these are terrible words, but it came from such an organic, authentic place and I still feel that now in how I make podcasts I always approach it the same way I do one which I adore doing called doing it right which is about kind of busting the myths and anxieties of modern life and I do that alone with a sound editor I'm launching a books podcast in December which again will be independent with another novelist I've really enjoyed making two audio documentaries one on Britney Spears one on the critical history of reality tv and then I've got The Missing which is a different beast because I didn't create it, I don't exec it or anything like that, I just host it. So it's much less work for me, but it's incredibly rewarding and it's got such a good purpose, which is essentially trying to raise awareness of these long-term missing people. Leeds definitely changed me because I needed to go and live in a big city. I needed to sort of pretend to be an adult for a bit, you know, be in charge of my own time and how I spent it and how I socialised. And it was terrifying a lot of the time, but I did have a really wonderful time and I, I think back on it with love. Thanks, Pandora, for that insight into the world of literature, love and Leeds. Next up, raincoats at the ready. Here in Leeds, there's no shortage of clouds, but the wild West Yorkshire weather has proved a source of inspiration for our next guest. Jim McQuaid from the School of Earth and Environment is an associate professor of atmospheric composition. He's appeared on TV shows such as Operation Cloud Lab, Secrets of the Skies, Richard Hammond's Wild Weather, and has been a regular contributor to the local radio legend, Paul Hudson's Weather Show. Jim's here to tell us about how he's used the different skills he's gathered from measuring air pollution to touring for four years with a Leeds-based rave band, all in order to transform how we understand the weather across the globe. Dr McQuaid, first and foremost, welcome to Forever Leeds. Thank you. I think you're the only person we will definitely have ever had who has weighed a cloud. Uh, So most people want to know, how do you do that? So um, I used an airship, the, long, the largest airship in the world at the time, 
We flew into the cloud, we measured the dimensions uh, out of the side of the window, and I had an instrument called a cloud droplet probe, which does exactly what it says on the tin. It measures cloud droplets, and then some pretty basic maths uh, to get to the way to the cloud. What was it that sparked your interest in this field? Um, well, I originally did a chemistry degree, and I've, I've always liked taking things apart, if you speak to my mother. Uh, <laughs> they didn't always go back together successfully. So, you know, making measurements... You know, I've always enjoyed that. So the opportunity to do do this and do it in exotic places, flying around an aircraft and things like that, that that did appeal. And also, it's you know, it's a something that's valid. People can understand that it's good to measure pollution or gases or aerosols that are impacting the climate. And with the cloud droplet probe you're talking about, you can apply that technology to other things as well. So the instrument that we use uh, to measure the cloud droplets is quite an expensive instrument. They cost between fifty and hundred thousand pounds. But we can use exactly the same principle, the same physics, which is basically shining a laser light uh, at particles that they come past, which will actually measure the size of them and count them. So we can use this instrumentation to measure particulate matter or what people would think about as air pollution. So we can use these instruments in the city centre. We also use them outside just to see how clean the air is 20 miles from Leeds. And we also used exactly the same instruments uh, in a clean facility at uh, the university to measure how effective masks are during the COVID pandemic because they're aerosols as well. COVID is airborne, as you, as you probably know, So, but we can measure them using exactly the same technology. Nice. Uh, and then also you've made clouds on television before. How easy is it actually to make a cloud? Uh, it's, it's relatively easy because what we used, uh, so, <laughs> slightly flippant, um, you may have been in supermarkets where some, some of the vegetable counters and fresh herbs and things like that, there's like a mister. Um, and this is simply a piezo uh, system that generates very, very small droplets. And that's probably the easiest way to generate a constant flow because we wanted a, a sort of constant uniform flow of clouds to actually uh, illustrate what we were showing on the programme. I'm never going to go to the supermarket and uh, look at the frozen owl in the same way now. It's going to be totally different. Uh, talk to us a bit about the, the Greenland ice sheets. I know you've worked there and you've camped out there as well. Um, not many people listening to this podcast will have been there. So give us a little flavour of what that's like. Well, funny you should say that not many people will have been there because the first place we went to, one of the amazing things was we probably thought that no one has ever been there before. And if you think about it, there's not many places on the planet that you can go to like that. But actually, I've been to you know lots of places during my career, but actually camping on the Greenland ice sheet was just an amazing experience. 24-hour daylight, uh, and you just wake up to the sound of people moving around and you know crunching on the ice. And then it, you wouldn't need to go back far from the camp uh, to be in complete and utter you know isolation and silence. It was just, you know... It was, you know, a life experience, and I've been there twi- three times now. Did you go there with the rave band? <laughs> no, I didn't go there with the rave Because you took band. a little break, didn't you? Is that right? Uh, I, indeed, I did. So I, I started as an undergraduate in 1987. I was a, one of the members of uh, the university ENTS, or the union ENTS, and I helped out and, and organised uh, various events, including some raves uh, in the refectory, and on one occasion, uh, there was a local bank of the Utah Saints, and I gave them a hand. And at the end of the show, they said, uh, what are you doing next week? Uh, and they said, do you want to come to Oxford? We're doing a show at Exeter College, Oxford. Like fun. And I, I knew the band, so they, you know, they were a good, good bunch. So I, I did that. Uh, and then about six weeks later, I flew to America 
um, and we toured America. <laughs> That's, I guess you weren't expecting that to happen when you first started. Uh, no, not, <laughs> not, not, not at all. You know, we toured the States a few times, went to Europe. Um, it was just, you know, it was an incredible experience. So obviously you've been around in Leeds for a while. I'm sure a load of our alumni listening will probably be really jealous of that. Uh, how similar is the university now to when you started? Well, a lot of the buildings, a lot of those haven't changed. They're still there, so the memories are always um, invoked when you see those. Mm. I spoke to someone this morning, they reported they'd seen a recent photo and there were no traffic cones in the Roger Stevens Pond, which they always remembered. <laughs> but there are. We just have a heron and some ducks in the Roger Stevens Pond. There's lots of building and development uh, work that's gone on on campus. Just next door to where I was an undergraduate is the Bragg building. So, you know, there are some major developments going on on campus now. And what about teaching here makes you love your job so much? I think I think it's the diversity of the students. Um, I teach in our environmental science uh, programme. Um, so they, they come here knowing, you know, we have a very large school of earth and environment uh, covering a large range of the earth sciences and environmental sciences. So they're engaged, they're interested, they want to come here. Mm. And, you know, I was born in Sheffield and it's Yorkshire. So I don't really need to say much more than that. <laughs> As a fellow Yorkshireman, I, I totally appreciate uh, what you're saying there. You, you don't stay in a place unless you really love it. What is the one thing you love about being here above everything else? It's just the, the, the Leeds thing, and I, if you speak to me, or the Yorkshire thing, if you speak to anybody, and we have a lot of students who who come back to Leeds uh, to do PhDs and things like that. So obviously, you know, I, I'm not on my own. A lot of people, they, they, they're undergraduates here, and then they reappear a couple of years later as a PhD student and things like that. So it's it's a place that people, they might start here, maybe go away, but they come back. Love it. Dr McQuaid, thank you so much for joining us on Forever Leeds. Thank you. Now, music is a central part of any university experience, but here at Leeds, our vibrant music scene is an art form. And our next guest, music legend Bill Bruford, has definitely helped to put Leeds on the map by playing the drums in Yes, King Crimson and Genesis. Bill tells us about how he helped to create the gig culture that continues today. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Bill Bruford. Uh, I was a student at Leeds University for about the shortest time known to any students at Leeds University. We'll come on to that later. I have been a musician for 41 years and now I'm an academic writer with a PhD from a different university. My connection to Leeds is fairly tenuous, I must say. I went up in 1968, I think, to uh, study economics. My heart, I think, in my head was being in a band the band uh, we had formed called Yes, went on to do wonderful things around the world. But at the time, uh, I had been with the band about six months and I knew I had a place at Leeds University, so much to everyone's upset. Uh, I fear I absconded to Leeds University. Sure enough, you know, a few months later, the band turned up at the university because Leeds University had the most fantastically huge pocket of money in which to buy bands and, and on a regular Saturday night, you might have four bands. And it was a great place for music. Sure enough, the upcomes, yes. And I'm not playing with them. Obviously, they've got another drummer. And I've got all my friends lined up, all ready to go. And the band came on and they were terrible. What made it even worse, as I went backstage later on to see the guys I'd known, was that they were going from strength to strength. And their next gig was at the Royal Albert Hall. And how could I possibly desert them at their time of need? So sure enough, 
I zoomed down the motorway, played the Royal Albert Hall show. Then, you know, one thing led to another. I thought I really should probably leave the university. Um, I did ask them that they could maybe keep my place warm for a year, <laughs> but that was not to happen. I was listening to a lot of music uh, when I was at school and learning to play the drums age 13, 14, you know, and there was an older guy leaving the school I was at and he was the drummer. And he said, well, you know, you seem to be interested, Bill, in um, playing the drum set. So why don't I show you a few things and you can do all the, the stuff that I've done. And he was he was great. But this was jazz. We, we, we were jazz musicians. I thought I was going to be a jazz musician. I had no idea uh, or very little idea about about rock and pop. I thought um, jazz was great. So we had Art Blakey. We had Joe Morello, uh, all supported by the fabulous BBC TV show called Jazz 625 which was kind of prime time, I think at 6.25 on Saturday nights. Me, aged 14, I was hysterically in love with the whole thing. I couldn't understand how great this was, and I couldn't understand how these people made the music up, apparently, as it went along. I couldn't understand how the drummer at the back seemed to know everything that was happening, and whenever he went quiet, they all went quiet, and he controlled the thing. So that's what I'm going to do, I thought to myself, and that's what we were listening to. I suppose eventually I ended up playing jazz in a rock framework. Uh, I'd like to think that the best bits of jazz, the worst bits of it were left out and the best bits of it were retained. And the best bits of it were thinking of fresh ways to present the rhythm. Uh, so I didn't have to take down one of the two or three standard rock beats off the shelf every time I wanted to play a song. I invented something that was appropriate to what was going on around me and upon which other people could build. Sometimes I'm asked what was the most fulfilling musical experience I've had uh, in, in a lengthy career, and I, I wouldn't really put that on the doorstep of, of any one ensemble. I mean, the whole thing is a bit of a journey. You slowly get better at things. You have other people to get better with. But my understanding was you went to a group, you gave as much as you possibly could, you learned as much as you could, and then it is your obligation as a musician, actually, do not sit there and go around the world for the next 30 years playing your hit, but to uh, maybe take what you've learned and try and apply that with other people, learn more, see how that looks in a different context. A formative or, or, or lots of formative experiences, but most fulfilling, um, I would say, was, would be the complete 41 years. <laughs> next, the climate crisis continues to be at the forefront of our minds, from the Just Stop oil protests the COP27 summit in Egypt. And our researchers at Leeds are no different. This month, our academics have been in Toronto and San Francisco talking about the climate crisis and food production. Here's a little taste from across the pond. This month, world leaders have been at COP27 in Egypt to discuss the climate crisis. It's something that is at the heart of our research at the University of Leeds. And as a global leader in food and environmental research, our academics have spent part of November in North America, where they've posed the question, can we eat our way out of climate change? Professor Steve Banwart is the director of the Global Food and Environment Institute. Global food supply contributes about one-third of human greenhouse gas emissions um, that are driving climate change. We have until 2030 to begin reducing CO2 emissions and green, other greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. If we delay this beyond 2030, we risk very seriously the more catastrophic consequences of climate change, which will include 
insufficient rainfall in certain parts of the world to grow sufficient food for the world's population. It's really important and really necessary that we're connected with uh, leaders on agriculture and on science, research, technology, and with communities in Canada and the U.S., both because of the wealth of these nations. They are major food-consuming nations, and of course, they're incredibly important breadbasket nations. Professor Steve Banwart was also joined by Leeds alum and chairman of Ocean Spray, Peter Dillon. COP27, bringing together of nations from the entire world, is meeting in Egypt at the moment to find agreement and to shape a way forward to tackle climate change. And on the topic of food supply, those of us who are working at the interface between science, evidence, and policy, we are very aware that COP26 last year in the UK did not really address the issues of climate and food. The tour has also been a chance for our alumni from San Francisco and Toronto to get a little taste of Leeds in North America. My name is Jigisha Dalakia. I studied my master's in biosciences. I graduated in 2006. I was really looking forward to meeting um, other alumni from Leeds, also to see how University of Leeds is doing now, how much it's changed in the past 15 years. So I was very excited to come. My name's Gabriella Douglas. I studied architecture and civil engineering at the University of Leeds in 2013, but it was an exchange program. I did love my experience at Leeds. I, I, I'd love to reconnect with people like mine. And, and also, I, coming from an architecture and engineering background, I'm very interested in anything to do with climate change and how I can contribute um, in my industry and also my daily life. Finally, the refectory has been a stable part of Leeds' life since the mid-20th century. It's where artists and bands like The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Bob Marley, and more recently The Killers and Youngblood or Leeds' very own Corinne Bailey Ray have all performed. These days, it's more commonly used as a place to catch up with friends over a bit of grub. But what makes it so unique and well-loved? Our very own hotshot student producer, Tom Davey, joins students and staff as they chow down on the refectory's tasty offerings to find out. Uh, so if you could just say your name, please. I'm Kakungu Kaite. I think it's great. I mean, I come here a lot. It's got um, good food. <laughs> I'm very happy about it. Um, the prices are pretty decent. And the social interactions can be pretty great, I mean, if you spend a little time here. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it. Of all the places to eat and study on campus, few have had such a varied and interesting past as the University Union's refectory and its upstairs balcony cafe. From hosting fantastic gigs and events to facilitating pizza habits, I spoke to students and staff alike and asked for their thoughts on the refectory, their favourite items on the menu and the events that they've been to. I'm Harvey Mahaffey, I study history. And do you come to the refectory a lot? Yeah, quite a lot. Um, I just quite enjoy the sort of being able to chill and being in a quite relaxed space. I can eat and study, but also there's a lot more space. And also it's not quite like the library, so yeah. I don't need to worry about making too much noise. And do you have a favourite item on the menu? <laughs> <laughs> well, the beef lasagna is good. Uh, roasted chicken. Nice. Oh, the pizza downstairs. It's every day at the minute, but it's bad. We need, we need to stop. It's really unhealthy. Okay. The blue plaque outside the refectory proudly boasts that on the 14th of February 1970, the Who's famous Live at Leeds album was recorded there. 
Now, despite other venues popping up around the city in subsequent years, the refectory remains hallowed ground for musicians and acts. I spoke to Ben Nuttall, a technician who has worked at many of the events at the refectory. Um, so I've done set up for quite a few gigs, so like Damnation Festival a couple of times. Um, we had Youngblood in about this time last year, actually. And I was the lighting operator in there for Leeds Ball this year. Oh, nice. And I'm going to be that, I'm designing the lights for it this year. Yeah, so like something that's really interesting is like I've heard I've ever heard like touring crew coming through. They see these things like, oh my god, these massive bands have played here and now we're here. Mm-hmm. So for them, it's like the the part of this history of these incredible bands coming through the union and that space in particular. And just to be able to facilitate that is great. Whether your memories of the refectory are of the food and friends you made there or the amazing bands and acts you saw, the space is a staple of the lead student life and will continue to be a place where students make memories that will last forever. And that's the end of November's edition of Forever Leads. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back in a month's time with more updates on campus life and the cutting-edge scholarship that makes Leeds such a unique place to have studied at. But before we go... Through your alumni donations, we can keep the brilliant programmes that allow the brightest minds to study in Leeds going. Your donations really do change students' lives. With your generosity, students who are the first in their family, area or school to go to university can be well supported while here. Prospective students may have caring responsibilities or they may have been in care themselves or they might be estranged from their families. With your help, they can come to Leeds and transform their futures. Do you want to get behind the next generation of students and help them access all Leeds has to offer? Well, you can support them through scholarships, but also through the PLUS programme at Leeds by making a donation today. All you have to do is visit give.leeds.ac.uk. That's give.leeds.ac.uk. Your donations will mean that students can be supported by a dedicated team of professionals who can help them make Leeds a home. And from there, they can go on to do great things. And from here, you should go on to your lecture because you're about to be late. So how, how many minutes have you got to get there? Oh, I can do it in five, I think. I can, I can sprint my way. It's What's right. the lecture on? Uh, it's themes in contemporary photography. Actually, today we're doing a workshop. Uh, so I've got my camera in my bag. So it's actually going to be quite easy. I'm quite excited. Last thing we want is for you to be late for one of your lectures. So uh, you can head off to your workshop and we'll say a big thank you for tuning in and we will see you in December. Bye. Bye.